He always does a countdown. And this is Hebrews 2020. We are at increment 124 of We See Jesus. And in this message, we're going to head towards something I like to call distillation, a distillation of the whole book. We did the same thing for Revelation. Toward the end, we tried to distill the essence of the book and the message that the book was bringing forth. I want to do the same thing with Hebrews, and we'll do it a little bit along the way. It's going to be toward a distillation of Hebrews. And the second goal for every book that we teach, including Revelation, is to present the book on the level of our own time, on the level of our own time. Those two things, a distillation of the book or the homily or the message, and secondly, a looking at it on the level of our own time, its application to our own time where we're living and in our own historical situation. Both of these are extreme, extremely important, and both of these are goals that are included in our teaching of Hebrews. So we'll begin with prayer. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity, and we pray that the word will proceed forth in such a way that the Holy Spirit will be able to portray to the eyes of our heart our Lord Jesus, and that we may truly see him crowned with the glory of the King of Kings and with the honor of our great arch priest. And may this word have application to us in our own time, and may you show us the distilled meaning and the distilled purpose for this wonderful document we call Hebrews. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. To the question that the Lord called out to the first man, Adam, after his act of disobedience, where are you, God says. Adam answered and said, I heard the sound of you walking about in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. Then the Lord God asked him, who told you that you were naked unless you've eaten from the tree of which I commanded you of this one alone not to eat from it? God had commanded him and he emphasized it. One alone, one tree alone of all the trees in this orchard, this garden, not to eat of it. And you must have because you're afraid and you're aware that you are naked. That's Genesis 3.10 to 11. I'm kind of paraphrasing it. The self-awareness of Adam's nakedness, it was a painful self-consciousness, came from the knowledge that derived from eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one and only tree which the Lord God had commanded him specifically not to eat the fruit of. So the questions that the Lord God put to the man were rhetorical questions. God obviously knew where he was when God said, where are you? And God also knew the answer to the question, who told you that you were naked? 
And unless it's because you ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Lord knew that too. The questions that the Lord God put to the man were therefore rhetorical. Adam could only have been painfully and self-consciously aware of his nakedness and could only have been afraid of God because of his act of disobedience. So God was really after a frank and candid, honest confession of sin from Adam. As Matthew Henry commented on this, he said, Though God knows all our sins, yet he will know them from us and requires from us an ingenuous confession of them, not that he may be informed, but that we may be humbled. Instead of that reaction from Adam, however, the man, as we all know, blamed the woman, and the woman blamed the snake, the serpent. So the Lord God then oddly held the snake the woman, and the man all accountable in that order. And each was brought under a particular curse. But it was a curse that Messiah Jesus ultimately bore as he hung naked and wearing a crown of thorns on the cross, where in the body of his flesh, through death, in Ephesians 2, 14 and 15, God would destroy the enmity, compare that with Genesis three fifteen, the enmity between people groups that was brought about by sin. The painful self-consciousness of Adam who sinned ultimately by the slick psychological manipulation of the accuser, Satan, indicated that now the man was under the control of the accuser and subject to fear, to shame, to guilt, and consequently vulnerable to manipulation. Now, I'm going on purpose to this spiritual aspect of the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of the brothers and sisters of Messiah. For at the basis of Hebrews, and the answer that the Hebrews author gives is a, an accusation that really comes from the accuser of the brethren himself, an invisible foe, also called Diabolos or the slanderer, and Diabolos, devil, also means accuser. So, I'm bringing this up because it applies to the situation of the recipients of the Hebrews homily. These Christians had somehow come into a false sense of awareness that they were naked, spiritually speaking, in that they lacked the life-saving provision of an archpriest. The whole temptation that they had about holding fast or not holding fast their confession of Jesus as Lord and going, or as the Son of God, and the temptation to go back to the temple sacrifices was rooted in the accusation that they didn't have an archpriest anymore. And there's nothing in the New Testament that ever tells them that Jesus was an archpriest, only Hebrews, because that's where the insight came forward 
to answer the accusation of the accuser of the brethren, which came through the people that they once associated with. So the Christians had somehow in this house church that was being addressed by this Hebrews pastor teacher who wrote Hebrews had the false sense that they were inadequate and lacked the life-saving provision of an archpriest like their Jewish brethren did, their Jewish counterparts did. Someone told them, in other words, falsely in this case, that they were naked because they lacked the divine provision of an archpriest, a high priest. They were without the benefit of the priestly robes, as it were. And therefore, they were naked and should, by all rights, be ashamed. And not only ashamed, but afraid of God's judgment. Now, here's where we get into an interpretive insight that really kind of excited me, because when you read the stern warnings of Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, and Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, you wonder why the writer seems so harsh or stern. The reason for that is he's borrowing the language of those who were accusing these Christians and accusing them to be that they ought to be afraid because they don't have an archpriest and that they are going to be suffering the fiery vengeance of God that comes to adversaries of God, when in fact the opposite is true. So that's going to help us interpretively when, it, when we get to Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, in Hebrews 10, 26 to 29, two passages I've never seen fully interpreted to my own satisfaction, but we're going to look at them down the road for sure. This is going to prepare us for it. So if we were to trace this accusation to its source, we would have to conclude that it's the same snake, serpent, the old serpent, the Satan, the adversary, the accuser, He goes by many names, or he's called by many names. He is the original source of that that accusation, the one who solicited the first woman to sin, knowing that the man would follow. The accusation that they lacked an archpriest and were therefore naked and should be fearful of the consequences of that deficiency came from he whom a loud voice from heaven in Revelation 12:10 called the accuser of the brothers and sisters meaning the accuser of Messiah's siblings that word accuser is a strange one for the new testament it's k a t e g o r kategor and we sort of get the word category from it, but not quite. Kategor is really a transliteration of a Hebrew word, and that's why it's unfamiliar in the Greek New Testament. It's a name that was given to the devil in the Midrashic writings and the Talmud, the Jewish writings of the rabbis. So the word here for accuser was one given to the devil. The accuser of our brothers and sisters, a voice from heaven called him that. Diabolos itself, the Greek word for 
devil, that's usually translated devil, sometimes that's not the right way to translate it because of all the mythical and almost humorous notions of him. And what he does is really not funny. Diabolos itself means accuser. And it's used in that context in Zechariah 3.1, where we're going to be going soon. Zechariah 3.1. And also in Job 1.9 in the Septuagint Greek text. In Zechariah 3.1, now I'm giving you lots of things to think about today, but they're all going to figure prominently in what's going on in Hebrews. And in fact, in a distillation of what Hebrews is all about. In Zechariah 3.1, it says that Satan stood ready to oppose the archpriest at that time. His name was Joshua the priest, or Yeshua, or if you anglicized it, it would be Jesus, oddly enough and strangely enough. The Lord sharply reprimanded the accuser who was accusing the high priest, the archpriest named Yeshua, the son of Yochabed, or Yosedek. Then Zechariah, who was clothed, it says, with excrement-stained garments, as he stood before the angel of the Lord, was told the angel of the Lord, who is Yahweh himself, incidentally, commanded the angels that were standing around and standing before him, before his throne, before the, un- the throne of God, He commanded the angels to take off Yeshua's filthy robes. So the angel of Yahweh said, See, and he speaks to the high priest, the archpriest. He said, See, I have removed your guilt from you, and I will clothe you with splendid robes. These robes, of course, were the robes of the archpriest. This Zechariah was the archpriest at the time of the return from the exile of Israel for a 70-year deportation. And then marvelously, the angel of the Lord, also known as the Lord of the armies, in that same passage I'm talking about in the barest outline of Zechariah 3, 1 to 9, no pun intended, barest outline, then marvelously, the angel of the Lord, also known as the Lord of the armies, said, quote, I will let my servant, the branch, be seen. This was a prophecy that the greater Jesus, the greater archpriest, Jesus, our Lord, the Son of God, would be seen. He's called the branch prophetically, but he's also called the servant. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 40, verses one through the end of chapter 55, 16 whole chapters devoted to the suffering servant, climaxing, of course, in Isaiah 53. So he says, see, I will let my servant, the branch, be seen, and I will take away the guilt of the land, we could say the whole earth, in one day. And that's Zechariah 3.9. How can God take away the guilt of the earth in one day? by the lamb taking away the sin of the world on the cross. And so just dealing with the bare outline of this passage, and it tempted me even this morning to go further with this, and someday I hope to, but just dealing with the bare outline of the Zechariah 3, 1 
to 9 passage. We see its significance in our study of Hebrews because God said, I will allow the branch, my servant, to be seen, and our series is called We See Jesus, who is the branch, he is the servant of, the, of Yahweh, who suffered on the cross, and through his death, many were made righteous. He is also the great archpriest. There were only hints that Jesus was going to be the archpriest of the people of God, that the Messiah was going to be the archpriest in the Old Testament. And none of the 27 books of the New Testament ever say that, only Hebrews. So Hebrews is unique in the sense of identifying Jesus Christ as a great archpriest, and in fact as our great archpriest, even in our own time. And I hope that's going to be more and more clear as we go on. And so the accuser, ready to oppose him, we see in that passage. We see then Yahweh's servant, the branch, being seen. And that's nothing short of the promise that Jesus will be seen, crowned with glory and honor, which is Hebrews 2.9, from which we got the name of our series. In Revelation, that being the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the siblings that are accused are called a kingdom of priests. Now, even Revelation doesn't call Jesus Christ a great archpriest, but it calls his people or his brethren a kingdom of priests. So the hint is there that he must be the great king and the great archpriest. Only Hebrews makes it explicitly because in my view and in my estimation, I believe that the Holy Spirit whispered to this pastor teacher who wrote Hebrews, tell them they do have an archpriest despite their accusers. And then write the whole epistle, write a whole epistle the central part of which identifies Jesus, the Son of God, of their confession to be that archpriest. And that will in turn reveal to them that they are the eschatological Israel of God. And so shut down the mouth and shut the mouth of their accusers. And so this is the spiritual side of this. This is the invisible spiritual conflict going behind the scenes here, and that occasioned this writing, which we call Hebrews. In Revelation, a kingdom of priests, Revelation 1.5, the eschatological Israel who are purified through the blood of Jesus Christ. Not only were the addressees of this homily not naked, therefore, despite the accuser who told them they were, but they were actually clothed with priestly robes. And their great archpriest is Yeshua, Yahweh's servant, Jesus the branch, Jesus the son, in whom God has spoken with finality in these last days. He is Jesus, the son of God, who has passed through the heavens, through the torn veil of his own flesh, and into the holy of holies in heaven, where he ever lives to make intercession for us, even as the accuser tries his best to get us to loosen our grip and our hold on the boast of our hope, on our bold confession of Jesus as the Son of God, whose sacrifice took away our sin and the sin of the whole world. 
in Revelation, which is rightly called the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, this accuser was overcome, defeated by the brothers and sisters of Jesus. That is, the same people whom he calls my brothers and sisters, whom he calls into glory in Psalm 22, 22, or 21, 23 in the Septuagint. The brothers and sisters of Jesus, by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 12, 11. And please note there the juxtaposition of word and blood that we've seen before. And then he adds that they did not love or choose to preserve their lives under the threat of death. These, many of these became martyrs for their faith and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. But they had matured to the place where they reached a state of spiritual completion where they could resist the sin of apostasy and of going back on their confession of Jesus Christ, even to the extent of dying, if they had to. So, the accuser says, you're naked, and you ought to be ashamed and afraid. The Bible says, in answer to that, you are clothed with the righteousness of the Messiah, And you ought to even boast in the Lord and allow perfect love to drive out all fear. For fear has torment. For this same accuser is the devil who kept people in fear their whole lives long, says Hebrews 2.15 and 2.14. But he was defeated by Jesus who partook of blood and flesh just like his brothers and sisters just like his brethren, in order to destroy the devil and his works. Hebrews 2.14 to also 1 John 3.8 and John 12.32, along with Revelation 12.9 through 12. Now, this is the purpose of Hebrews. It's sent to deliver a people under accusation, to liberate a people to know who they are, to know that they are clothed, to know that they have a great archpriest representing them, presenting himself to God for them, interceding for them. So the accuser of the brothers and sisters of Messiah, whom God is calling into glory, incidentally, the accuser of the brothers and sisters of Messiah is the invisible source of something that we have in our own time. And I didn't plan to address this, but I think the Holy Spirit wants me to address it. It's a thing called critical race theory. It's a curriculum that's been proposed and is even taught now already in elementary schools. CRT, as it's called, critical race theory, is in essence an accusation against white people that they ought to be ashamed for their race and the privileges that it supposedly historically afforded them. It is also a backhanded accusation against so-called people of color 
that they should view themselves as victims. In both cases, the theory accuses people of being naked, of being somehow inadequate, of being somehow dependent on, let's say, a totalitarian state. It's one of the most destructive and divisive theories that has ever been proposed in education. And it's directed toward the ruination of children's souls so that they can become slaves to a totalitarian system. It is entirely opposed. Now, this is why I teach it as a pastor-teacher. This is why I address this on the level of our own time as a pastor-teacher. It is enti- This theory is entirely opposed to the notion of a human solidarity and a human freedom and a human unity in Christ. And it accentuates differences that are only an issue due to Adam's disobedience. No race-based history. Listen carefully to this. No race-based history has any lasting merit or value. You can't teach or do history based on race and racial distinctions. No race-based psychology can promote mental health. It can only promote and produce malaise and sadness. No race-based sociology can ever promote or create social harmony or unity. It can only produce alienation and mutual hostility. Only the gospel, the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery of human solidarity in Messiah, only that truth, only that gospel, only the gospel that proclaims a human unity despite race in Messiah Jesus, the Savior of the world, only the gospel can ultimately overcome the evils of such theories and truly liberate people of all races from the guilt, the shame, the fear, and yes, even the hate that is aroused by such theories. Now, we've postulated that Hebrews was written as a response to an accusation leveled at a particular Christian community. And that was leveled through the members of a society from which they had become dissociated. These Christians had left the temple sacrifices. They had left the priesthood that was called Levitical or Aaronic. And then they found themselves in kind of a no man's land like the desert wanderers. And in that desert, they were accused by the spirit of the age of not having an archpriest. Now, look what you've done. You've come out here into this no man's land. You don't have an archpriest. You're dissociated from Aaron and the priests and the Feast of Atonement and maybe even cut off from the forgiveness that comes through the sacrifices. And so you should expect a fearful expectation 
of judgment, fiery judgment. And so the accusation, again, went something like this. When you dissociated yourself from the temple in Jerusalem to follow this Jesus and to confess him as the Messiah, the Son of God, you also dissociated yourselves from the priesthood of the temple and especially the archpriest in Jerusalem. Distancing yourself in this way left you without an archpriest and consequently without the benefit of his service and ministry pertaining to God on your behalf. You have cut yourselves off from the indispensable benefit of the annual Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and thus the forgiveness of sins. Because of this, you're now liable for the fiery vengeance that will devour the adversaries of Israel and of God. You are naked, and you should be ashamed and afraid. See how this plays in? This accusation must most certainly would have constituted an effective assault, if we're going to go military on this, ultimately from the accuser of the brethren. It was an offensive that was designed to halt the progress of this community on to a state of completion. They were on their way to a state of completion where there would be a coherent community, a Christian messianic community, separated from past loyalties and from a, an annulled system. And they would truly see Jesus crowned with the glory of the great king and with the honor of a great archpriest. So this attack was to tell them that indeed they had no archpriest, but the response called Hebrews was to tell them that indeed they did have a great archpriest who currently intercedes for them and who has offered one sacrifice for sins forever. When we consider the threats that their accusers made, and that according to their accusation, these Christians were in danger of fiery vengeance from God, it's easy to see that in Hebrews 6, 8, and 10, 27 and following, the PT turned this language right around and said quite the opposite. He said, yeah, if you want to go back to Jerusalem and the temple sacrifices and therefore let loose of your hold on your confession of Jesus as Lord, you will experience fiery vengeance because you know why? In a very short few years, Jerusalem is going to be sacked and burned along with its temple so that not a stone will be left upon a stone. So he turned that whole language of fiery vengeance around completely. What a pivot that was. It's phenomenal. And we're going to, this again is just introducing the subject in the roughest sort of form. So I think you can see maybe where we're going. I hope you can, because this is remarkable. And I only say that because the Holy Spirit's involved. The PT then takes the very language used by the accusers and deploys it as a basis for warning his readers to hold fast all the more to their confession of Jesus, the Son of God, and not to retreat to their former loyalty to the temple, the stone temple in Jerusalem that was slated for that very fiery vengeance. So I want to close today by showing some irony to this whole thing. 
The irony is that the Christian community, which is in essence being accused of being cut off from Israel and therefore from God, and some of you who have been in this congregation for some time might recognize where I'm going with this, it's ironic that they who were accused of being cut off from Israel and from God are actually the real Israel of God. They are the actual eschatological Israel of God. And God was going to have mercy on the people that were his accu- their accusers also because he's going to have mercy upon all. But this church, this community of believers that was being assaulted by those who were not believers in Messiah, they were actually being assaulted by people who were not the new eschatological Israel yet. Not yet. They were actually accusing the real Israel of God. I'm borrowing a term from Paul in Galatians 6.16. The Israel of God is a term that the accusers would have taken for themselves, ironically. So the eschatological Israel of God has its archpriest, like historical or ethnic Israel, but one who is far superior. Hebrews, I'm talking about the book in toto, the homily in its totality, in its distillation. Hebrews wasn't just an essay written about Jesus as a great archpriest. It was written as an answer to an accusation of the accuser of the brethren, and it consisted of the word of the testimony of the saints and the blood of the lamb by which that accuser would be defeated. And he will be defeated in our own time also by the gospel and by the holders of the gospel in our hearts. Revelation 1, 5, 5, 9, 7, 14, 12, 11, Hebrews 9, 12, 9, 14, 10, 19 to 23, 10, 29, 12, 24, and 13, 12, and 13, 20, all represent a blood groove, that it's the blood of Jesus Christ by which we are liberated from these accusations. So it may also be suggested that the saints in this community reach the level of spiritual completion as a result of this book, as a result of this homily, that they actually reached the level of spiritual completion in which they would have been willing to resist sin, that is the sin of returning to former loyalties and disowning Jesus Christ, they would have been willing to resist that sin to the point of blood, as Hebrews 12.4 puts it, in connection with Revelation 12, 9 to 12. And by this, they would have overcome the accuser and, as it says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace would have crushed Satan under their feet. Every generation faces some kind of accusation from him, some way in which he tries to bring a generation into slavery to him. Every generation has a remnant or a pivot of believers who can be responsible to the word of God and attentive to the word of God and empowered by the word of God to overcome him, not only for themselves, but for the generation in which they're living, for the nation in which they live. And that's how sobering, that's how somber is this book and it's its relevance to our own time. So in closing... 
I guess this would be the second closing. The benefit of having come to Hebrews at this very time and to have come to it through revelation that we've already studied in this place, that benefit keeps on bearing good fruit. When one is brought to completion in the sense of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 6.1, this evidently means that one has reached the place where they would even resist the temptation to return to loyalty to the old temple and renounce their confession of Jesus as the Son of God, that they would resist that even to the extent of death. Hebrews 12.4. Again, compared with Revelation 12.10-12. And the reason for this is precisely because they will have so identified with Jesus, the Son of God, as to be participants in the perseverance and the fidelity by which he himself endured the cross while what? While despising the shame. That means while thinking nothing of the shame that the accuser and his minions heaped on him. Father, we thank you for this exhortation, for this message, for this sermon in itself. And we thank you that you have revealed to us and peeled back the curtain, peeled back the veil, as it were, to see the invisible reason for this wonderful document, one which has come down to our own time to have vital and crucial application. And we pray, Father, that we will be of that pivot, of that remnant of saints and believers that will in looking back upon our lives, be seen as a responsible community, responsible for the defeat of the destructive tactics of the accuser in our own generation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.